And we're reading from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. Let's hear the word of God. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were, t- you were together with them in prison and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can we immortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burnt outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us, then, go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an endearing city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips, that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Thank you to Martin for leading us and of course to our musicians for their excellent work. Thank you on behalf of all of us. Um, So as we come towards the end of the book of Hebrews, I wanted to share with something about which I know very little. Modern life is very complex, isn't it? And um, increasingly, as you get older, you're asked to specialise. So what happens is we come come to things, uh, a lot of things, knowing not very much. And I'm going to share with you something that could be written on the back of a, a very small postage stamp, Uh, It's one of those areas in life of which there are many, uh, of which I know little or nothing. But I'm going to share with you the very little I know about architecture, and it won't take very long. (laughs) Uh, But architecture uh, is uh, a way of understanding 
the passage that we have before us. So Hebrews chapter 13 and the first 16 verses in particular are very different from the first 12 chapters. So in my basic understanding of architecture, and it doesn't get more basic than this, there's the stuff you put below the ground and the stuff you put above the ground. I understand that the stuff you put below the ground, up to ground level, is the foundations. The stuff you put above, which in my house is like the walls and the roof, um, as, you, as I said, didn't get more basic than this. That's the, that's the structures. So that's the stuff you put above the ground. And what we have here in the book of Hebrews, at least in this uh, way of understanding the book, is that in the first 12 chapters, you have the foundation. And then in uh, chapter 13, uh, we're going to find that there are certain structures of Christian community. So the book of Hebrews, as Nigel has indicated, reads more like a sermon than a letter. What I think is probably the case is that it's a number of sermons put together and sent out as a letter to Jewish Christian communities across Europe and the Middle East. Probably before AD 70, because what happened in AD 70 was catastrophic, not only for the Jewish state, but for Jewish worship. But that's not really mentioned, so it probably hasn't happened yet. So it's a very early uh, letter that's been formed, I think that's right actually, of different sermons that have been put together to encourage the early Jewish Christian communities. And uh, what we have in chapter 13 is uh, what looks on the surface to, our <laughs> at least to my 21st century British eyes, a set of jumbled thoughts. But if you stare at them for long enough, I've found, there is a logic, and we'll come to that a bit later on. So you may find that there's a certain pattern to the preaching that we have here at um, EE, as we've come to know it uh, uh, affectionately over the last two years, and that is that we teach the gospel a lot. We teach the gospel every week, and that's because the gospel is foundational to everything else. So... We have a slight change of pace, as you find in the book of Romans. Uh, first 11 chapters, full of doctrine and teaching and gospel. And then you have a massive change of gear at chapter 12, verse 1, therefore. And it's the same here in Hebrews. You have all that's, that's happening there, and then you have a change of gear here at the start of chapter 13. But I'm going to go back to review uh, the first 12 chapters very briefly with you. Um, and this is um, pressures to return to the old community. Because that's what the first 12 chapters are about. These early Jewish Christians under enormous pressure to go back to the Old Testament way of doing worship and the, the Old Testament Jewish way of life. So there were pressures to return to the old community. These Jewish Christians were under pressure from that first century, that very early Jewish persecution, of which we read in the Acts of the Apostles. The full-blown Roman persecution hadn't come yet, but they were under pressure, and I sense that some of their leaders were already in prison. There's a hint of that in um, verse 3, remember the prisoners. The leaders, this is salutary, are always the first to go to jail. <laughs> Uh, so don't rush into leadership. Um, 
And these early Jewish Christians were under pressure. They were under pressure from home and family. They tended to live in the word we might have used 50, 60 years ago was ghettos. They would live in these very early um, Jewish communities in the first century and they would have everything. If you've ever seen the film Fiddler on the Roof, it was a bit like that in the Jewish world. So you'd have your Jewish fishmonger, your Jewish butcher, kosher butcher. You'd have your um, people who made things like tables and chairs and so on. And they tended to be Jewish communities living amongst uh, a wider group of Gentiles, wh whichever country they were living in. And there were pressures. If you had become a Christian, that became an immediate pressure for you because there was pressure on you, in a sense, to leave your home, your family and your community and you're having to form a new Christian community made up of Jews and Gentiles. And there were pressures from home and family, from the local community. And if you were employed, let's say, for example, by your uncle, you might well have lost your job by now. That early Jewish persecution of the Christians was starting to happen. So there were pressures at work and employment in local Jewish businesses. And what to do on a Saturday? Everybody else was going to the synagogue. And you can see the pressures, which are referred to in chapters 1 to 12, of people starting to leave the Christian communities and go back to the synagogue worship on a Saturday. It wasn't just doctrinal reasons, it was practical reasons as well. And there were loyalties that you owed to your family to go back to the synagogue. So that was starting to happen. That's why this letter was written. And of course, on a Sunday... <laughs> Things get very complicated. So you were encouraged to go with your, uh, your Christian friends to the meeting that met on the first day of the week, on the Sunday. But, but of course, Jewish people didn't do that. So there were, these pressure there were these pressures in transitioning from being in a Jewish community to a Christian community. Pressures on your children. Because, of course, if you were Jewish... Christians in those days, you tended to send your children to the local Jewish school. It was fairly rudimentary and you would taught the Old Testament. Excellent. But, of course, if you were leaving the Jewish community, you couldn't really do that anymore. So where were you going to send your children? These were the kind of practical issues that faced the early Jewish Christian believers. And, of course... Uh, in a context of increasing persecution. The Roman persecution would not be far behind. So you can see why these folk were under such pressure to go back. There were pressures to return to the old community. And uh, the first 12 chapters could be summed up by saying, in effect, that the Old Testament worship, the Jewish worship, is now obsolete. It's now obsolete. Now, this is not anti-Semitic. Let me be very clear about this. This is not anti-Semitic. This is not me being anti-Jewish. Christian believers have made that mistake down through the centuries. And this is not uh, a sermon that is anti-Jewish um, anti in any way, sense or form. Uh, but Christians have made that mistake, and of course, catastrophically, in the 20th century. But the, the writer is saying in the first 12 chapters, these sacrifices that you find in the Old Testament worship still being 
made in Jerusalem and the old uh, set of worship still in the synagogue, those sacrifices are now obsolete because Jesus has come. And the Old Testament worship looked forward to Jesus who fulfills all of it completely. So, just very, very quickly, we haven't, we haven't got time to go through every single chapter, but what we've already seen is that Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. His priesthood is superior um, to Aaron's. It's of the order of Melchizedek. You remember that strange chapter in Hebrews that's referring back to Genesis. So he's got a vastly superior uh, priesthood. He's our high priest, and he's the mediator of the new covenant. And Mount Zion, as it were, to which Christians have now come, is superior to Mount Sinai. His sacrifice is final and renders obsolete and useless the Jewish sacrifices. So that's why you mustn't go back to the synagogue. That's why you mustn't go back to the old system, because it's gone. It's fulfilled. Jesus has fulfilled it all. There's no need to do that anymore. And in fact, to do that is to put yourself under the judgment of God. Our son Tom, some of you know him, several months ago he crashed his old Fiesta. And uh, on Friday night he got the, get the call, which you'd always dread, uh, late at night, uh, Dad, I've crashed the car. So you go out and the police are there and so on. And the car is in a, is in a bad way. <laughs> uh, but it was still drivable. And um, front was smashed in. One of the tyres is half off. The radiator's leaking all over the road. Uh, what else was wrong with it? But, uh, you know, you couldn't open one of the doors. It was in a very, very bad way. The whole of the front of the car was effectively just smashed in. He says, he still maintains this day it wasn't his fault, but... Um, but it was just about drivable. Police officer drove it about half a mile up to a place where we could pick it up the next day. And a chap came along with a big lorry, put it on the back of the lorry, took it back to our house, and we managed to drive it onto the drive. And uh, it was in a bad way. And uh, we went and we bought a replacement. It's not a new one, but it's, it's pretty good. The old one he got 70 quid for, would you believe? But even though it was drivable... The old one was obsolete. Now, if you'd seen me driving it around the streets of Chessington, you'd think, what? What's he doing? The, the front of that car is completely smashed in. It's leaking radiator fluid. It's, well, one of the tyres. And um, what kind of bloke is, is driving a car like that around? Still drivable, but obsolete. It's the kind of bloke He's trying to put a Betamax video into his DVD recorder. It doesn't work. It's obsolete. It's gone. John, you had a Betamax <laughs> at one time, didn't you? <laughs> Sorry to personalise it like that, but yeah. But, see, it's all gone. The Old Testament worship uh, has gone. And then, of course, just to bring this up to date a little bit more, and we'll see a bit more of this later on in the passage, the pressures on the Jewish Christians are somewhat similar uh, on us as 21st century, mainly Gentile Christians. The pressures are on you to return to what you used to do, the way you used to function, the way you used to operate, your default position as you 
grew up into adulthood, or what the world expects of you. So there is all these pressures. You go up to London and you see them on the posters, on the tube. All these pressures crowding in on you in the, the, um, the complexity and the rush of modern life to mould you into the form that 21st century British life wants you to be. Pressures in all kinds of parts of life. And pressures, as I say, to worship your own idols, the ones that your heart has created over the years, to which you go back when times are hard, because that's the way you've made life work. So we'll see a bit later on how some of this works out. So that was, the point of that particular point was the pressures to return to the old community, which were in the old these, these, uh, these first century Jewish um, Christians. But now, look at this second point. And this, at this point, you'll be glad to say, well, at last we get to the passage. Um, structures of the new community. Verses 1 to 9 in particular. So you look at verses 1 to 9 and you think, what on earth is going on there? Because it just looks like a random set of thoughts, really, about how you should live out chapters 1 to 12. So what does the new Christian community look like? Well, if you look at them hard enough, actually, and for long enough, they start to make huge sense. The first point in um, that first sentence, that first sentence of uh, verse 1 there, is a kind of overarching point. Let love of the brothers continue. And as in Paul's writings as well, um, all you really need, <laughs> John Lennon said, is love. And that, and that covers a multitude of areas. And you could sum up verses 1 to 9 in that first sentence of verse 1, let love of the brothers continue. But it's also one of the first principles of these structures of Christian community. So... Um, in fact, what you've got here in verses 1 to 9 is a bullet-pointed summary of the structures of community life. So these are the walls, the ceilings, and the roof of what the building looks like. Look at verses 1 to 3. Let love of the brothers continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember the prisoners and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. And this is about loving everybody in the community. And that also includes those out, outside the community, but primarily those inside the community. Particularly those who are being actively persecuted, because there's some of them clearly in prison, probably some of their leaders. It also includes sharing. If you look at verse 16, much later in the chapter, uh, in a different context, which we'll come to in a moment, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. This is one of the walls of the building. It's about loving each other, caring for each other, sharing with each other. So it's not just liking, smiling and waving at each other as we come in and out of this building. It's actively serving each other. We don't have time to, to dwell on how that might look, but just to note, it's one of these structures Secondly, 
Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. This second point is about respecting each other's marriages. Now, why is this here? You only have to sit and think for a couple of minutes and realise why it's here. This is bang up today. How relevant is this today? Just in the last few weeks, haven't we've seen, haven't we, how the numerous victims of sexual abuse or sexual assault have been speaking out. Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, others. We've seen in our own country as well, people like Rolf Harris and others. Those who don't respect marriage, but who want to operate outside of it. And uh, we have, we're surrounded in 21st century life by people who don't respect your marriage and my marriage. They don't. They're free agents, as they consider themselves to be. Did you know that there were 97,000 victims of rape in this country last year? 97,000 victims of rape. That's the context to which this verse is written. So let's stop for a moment, shall we? Marriage and sex are honoured in the Bible and the clear teaching of the scriptures is that the gift of sex is a gift of God and it's only to be, be practised within the covenant of marriage. I hope you're listening, Johnny. This is a very positive statement. He had some good news, by the way, if you didn't hear that. He's going to get married. And... and um, but we live in a society where marriage is not honoured. In fact, it's laughed at, isn't it? It's laughed at. And mainly men, mainly it has to be said, they want to operate outside the boundaries of marriage, if they possibly can, in all kinds of different ways. And we don't have time to go and look at those. But this writer is saying, for the Christian community, it mustn't be like that. You've got to respect your marriage and other people's marriages. Because sex is the gift of God and is to be honoured um, in, in the marriage relationship. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. How relevant this is. In all discussions of sexual practice, homosexuality, transgender discussions, all those kinds of controversial areas, where the Christian starts in those discussions is these two points. Sex is the gift of God and it's only to be used within the traditional model of marriage between a man and a woman. That's where you start in all these discussions. You don't start with people's feelings about themselves and they look at themselves and they say, I'm a man but I want to be a woman or vice versa. You don't start there. You start with this basic bedrock of what scripture teaches and then also of course uh, the reason the writer is saying this let marriage be held in honour among all is that there are always down through the centuries people who will say um, kind of this old Greek idea coming out again that what happens in the spirit is good but what happens in the flesh is bad and uh, there are always those who want to forbid marriage. 
And where you find that marriage is forbidden, what you find is actually men therefore operate outside the limits of marriage. So Roman Catholic priests are not allowed to marry. What has happened? That boundary has been transgressed. In the, uh, on the BBC website in the last few days, some of you might have seen the story of, of uh, Caldy Island, the Roman Catholic community on, the, on uh, this little uh, island just off the west coast of Wales. And Caldy Island is now notorious because of the actions of one particular priest who operated there, but also a sex offender who moved there um, from Sussex. And where marriage is forbidden, there will be problems. The Roman Catholic Church in the USA is dying because of scandals involving priests who want to operate outside the boundaries of marriage and have targeted children. So, and that's why one of the great uh, efforts we've had to put into place over the last two, uh, over the last two years here in, in the church here is we've had to really think hard about safeguarding. How do we safeguard our children and our vulnerable adults? And that's why we take it so seriously, because of verse 4. Let's move on. So within the Christian community, we must respect each other's marriages. What's the next thing about this next structure? Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? The reason I'm using the New, new American Standard Version is because it's got larger print. <laughs> and, uh, so, but this, this next structure is really important too. Being content with our personal financial circumstances. There's a challenge, isn't there? And how up-to-date this is. We read in the media, see on our television screens and so on, about tax havens for the wealthy elite. Those people who are earning millions yet want a tax haven so that the tax man can't take as much of their money as he's entitled to. Wish Ian Stevenson were here, he'd wax on this. <laughs> but tax havens for the wealthy elite. And don't we find this that we're prone to it as well. Dissatisfaction with our lot. We must have more. Our spirits are constantly dissatisfied with what we have, and that comes from a heart which is driven by greed. Nothing else. It's as simple as that. Christians are not immune from this. But then look at the motivation here. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? So it's about being content with your personal financial circumstances. God has promised to provide for us, and this is not to prevent the, the better off caring for those less fortunate in financial terms. In fact, part of the encouragement of verse 16 is to share. Let's go on to the next one. Verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their, contact, of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Now, as I say, one or two of their leaders are probably in prison, but I think the writer's also referring 
um, to the people who brought the gospel to these communities in the first place. And uh, he's saying, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. This is the next structure, and it's been a, a real part of my Christian life over the last 35 or so years. Imitating faithful leaders. In other words, what does a Christian life look like? You're entitled to look to the Christian leaders and say, I want to live the way they live their lives. And uh, verse 17, we're not allowed to talk about verse 17 because it's not part of our passage, but I'm going to mention it anyway. It actually goes a bit further and says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Now this is sobering for pastors and elders and leaders and so on. And even more so when you read the next verse, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes and forever. Now why is that there? That looks like a random thing that's just been plonked down in the middle of this. The reason it's there is because those former leaders, Jesus Christ is the same in his provision for you yesterday and today and forever. That's the first thing. Thank you, Philip Hughes, for that comment. Very helpful. But the second thing is about consistency. Because when you look at Christian leaders, you're entitled to want consistency from them. Are they the same in the home as they are here on a Sunday morning? It's consistency, and Jesus Christ is always the same. That's the reason it's there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so your leaders should be as well. They should be constant and consistent. And the last structure if you like, in verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Don't be carried away by false teachings, varied and strange. Don't be carried away. Do you remember these people were, they were going back into the synagogue and they were thinking about eating offered foods in a way to deal with their own sinfulness, which is hinted at here in the passage. He says, don't bother doing that. Don't get caught up with uh, false teachings, varied and strange teachings, because then you'll be building on a weak foundation. So as we think about those structures, how basic they seem to be, don't they? They really do seem to be quite basic. So love and care for each other. Um, Honour each other's marriages. Um, free yourself from the love of money and be content with the financial circumstances in which you find yourself. Uh, look to your leaders and imitate their faith because they need to be consistent. Uh, and uh, uh, keep yourselves from false teaching. They, they look fairly basic, don't they? But then I had a thought. 
What does it look like if you hold up a mirror image? What you find is this. So the features of cults um, break down at this point. If you hold up a mirror image of these uh, structures, if you like, and see what happens in cults, or in certain types of cults, you realise the wisdom of these principles. For example, I've, I've just managed to identify four features of cult leaders. Uh, and I'm thinking in, in these terms um, of um, well-publicised cases like um, Jim Jones, uh, who led the People's Temple, uh, Jonestown, you remember, in Guyana. Um, I'll just tell you just very briefly about it, but I would say this. Um, when you go home, go and look up on Wikipedia, if you just put in Jim Jones and the People's Temple, and read that story. Here was a man who appeared to be preaching the gospel in the early 1960s in California. And... Uh, Things went from bad to worse. And he just went off at a five or ten degree angle from the true. And he ended up in this community persuading 918 people to commit suicide, including 304 children, in effect murdered by their parents. And um, murdered also a US senator, Leo Ryan, who flew in to Jonestown to find out what was happening because people were starting to worry about this man. And uh, a complete catastrophe. And um, he went wrong in four areas. The same could be said of somebody like David Koresh, who led the Branch Davidian cult in Texas. And uh, these four things, which are a mirror image of the, uh, the structures that we find here, in chapter 13. First of all, they operate a cult of personality by charismatic attraction, then lord it over others, becoming authoritarian in their approach. So you had to do what Jim Jones said, because ultimately he said he was not only Jesus, he was the Gautama Buddha, he was Gandhi, and he threw the Bible on the floor in one of his meetings, stamped on it, and said... This is nonsense. You just need to follow me. Now, there's a man who's lost all sense of moral compass, obviously, but he, he ruled by a cult of personality and charismatic attraction. The number of social and political leaders in the USA who followed him, who went to his meetings, and who even wrote to Congress saying, even when they were finding things out about Jim Jones, they wrote into Congress defending him, even Jimmy Carter's wife. Secondly, they operate a selfish sexual e ethic. They don't honour marriages, but exploit women and sometimes children. Hear the stories of cult survivors, even the ones that are coming through today, and the things that they say about these cults in which they've been brought up, how the leaders would have their hands on women and vulnerable children and adults. And Jim Jones, it, it's now known that he was um, involved in very serious sexual abuse of adults and children. Thirdly, 
they often become selfish, these cult leaders, in their uh, accumulation of wealth. You see that in other religions as well, uh, but you see it, and sometimes you see it just on the fringes of Christian churches in the US. People who manage to accumulate huge amounts of money because they're starting to rule the church and say that they need more and more. And fourthly, these leaders introduce false doctrines which swamp the truth. We won't spend any time on that, but anybody who is now saying that we must all commit suicide is clearly teaching false doctrines, isn't he? I would say this, inconsistency with these leaders is a feature of their leadership. So in church, they would be charismatic preachers. But at home, they would be involved in uh, violence towards their partner. They would be sexually abusing other people's children, sleeping with other people's wives. They were inconsistent. And you see the value of what the writer is saying here. And you hold up the mirror of what happens in cult churches. And you can see why it's so important that we have these things in place. Uh, and then thirdly and lastly, uh, verses 10 to 16, we have an altar. Now, it's one of the things, if you know anything about, again, I'm, I'm sharing with you my little knowledge of architecture, Church architecture in this country is wonderful. It's one of those things I'd love to know a little bit more about. But church architecture down through the centuries is very, very interesting indeed. And what you find is that um, church architecture from about, I don't know, 12th century up until probably the 19th century, particularly in um, the Anglican Church and Roman Catholic churches, what you see in all those buildings is that the altar is the very centre of the building to which everything else points. All the seats face it, the choir face it, the stained glass window looks down upon it. The altar is the very centre of the building. But this writer says a strange thing. Verse 10, we have an altar. Now that's the thing about the Christian church. Down through the centuries, Christians have misunderstood this verse and they think that in order to build a proper Christian building in which Christians can worship God, they must have an altar. But the writer says, we already have an altar. Our altar is Jesus. It's the cross. So what the writer is saying so clearly to these Jewish Christians, who of course, you have to remember, were bound up in the Old Testament worship, and the way that you satisfied God's wrath was to offer sacrifice on an altar through a priest. So, first 12 chapters, he's saying, not only do we have um, an offering, it's Christ himself, we have a high priest, who is Christ, we have an altar, who is Christ. Can you see how he's completely fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system? Everything points to him. We don't need it anymore. But he says, we have an altar already. You don't need to go back to the old obsolete altar. It's gone. We already have one. Striking thing about a meeting here at um, this school in which we meet is you come in 
and there's no altar. And people go to churches like ours and they say, there's something missing. What I mean is, there's nothing at the front on which we sacrifice to God. And that's right. Um, because Christ is our offering, our priest and our altar. However, we do have sacrifices. This is where you need to keep your wits about you. We have an altar, and, uh, but we do have sacrifices. Verse 15, through him then, through him, and that's, that's the key, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So there are sacrifices. These are not made to satisfy God's justice or to placate his wrath. They are worship. When he says, um, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. He's saying, first 12 chapters, remember that. Any sacrifices you add on top of that are through him and they're not to placate God in any way. That's already dealt with. Your sins are dealt with. But we still sacrifice, in a sense, to God through our worship, our sacrifice of praise, and with our doing good and sharing. These things are worship which, with which God is pleased. But then finally, we bear Christ's reproach outside the camp. We have an altar from which those who serve the tab uh, tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, he died outside the city limits. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. In other words, what this meant was you have to come out of the synagogue we're going outside the camp now because the synagogue is honoring the old testament <coughs> sacrificial system so you have to come out in the way in a way we have to go outside the camp where they burned the bodies of the sacrificial animals because Jesus is outside the camp. He's no longer in the synagogue. So we don't go back to the synagogue. We have to come outside the synagogue, outside the Old Testament sacrificial system, because it's obsolete. And we come out and we go to Jesus, because he is outside the camp. And uh, as Christians today in 21st century Britain, this takes on a special meaning because we live in a slightly unusual situation. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, when I was just uh, a lad, really, the culture was in a very, very different place. Around half of people went to church on a Sunday. I don't know what the figure is now, but it's far large. And there was a kind of Christian consensus and you would have Christian debates on the television C.S. Lewis was very highly thought of. 
Malcolm Muggeridge and so on, he came from a basic Christian position, very highly thought of. Things have changed completely. People laugh at Christianity now. They laugh at the church. Any media outlet that talks about religion in any way, shape or form is negative. And respect for the Bible, the church and Christian things is no longer. And we are beginning to feel the heat of a coming fire of persecution. Need to realise that because th- I don't think things are going to get much better for Christians in this country. I think we are going to feel the fires of persecution at some point or other, but at least we're going to start feeling the pressure as these early Jewish Christians were as well. But remember, verse 14, here we do not have a lasting city. Although we may be British, that's a kind of secondary consideration. We have a first loyalty to Christ and his kingdom first. But we are seeking the city which is to come. And that's the reason why we don't get terribly comfortable here in modern 21st century Britain. Because we're looking, remember Nigel was saying last week, we're looking for the city of God that is to come in heaven. So how do we survive and prosper as a community of believers? Do we pull up the drawbridge and retreat into our holy huddle? No, we seek to engage with the outside world wherever we can and we preach the gospel at every opportunity. We model a community for the world. Do you realise that? That when we meet here on a Sunday morning, we're modelling, for anybody who's interested, what, how you should live your life. So love for and sharing with each other, respecting each other's marriages, Content with our money and possessions because we know that God provides for us. We respect and imitate godly leaders and value their consistency and we worship and share sacrificially. One last postscript. I had a great privilege of um, talking on the telephone to an old friend of mine, Simon Forshaw, um, a week or so ago and um, he's dying of cancer brain tumour that's going to consume him within just a matter of months. If he makes it to Christmas, he'll be doing well, I think. But I managed to spend some time, um, Bob Robinson and I managed to uh, have a really good telephone call with him. And the thing that struck me about Simon was, he's probably got, I don't know, six, eight weeks left to live, I said to him. And uh, the thing that struck me about what he said was, how much at this point now he just wants to spend time with his family and with his Christian family. Because he couldn't work anymore, he just woke up one morning, could barely put his trousers on. He shuffles around now with a stick. He can't work anymore, it's just impossible. He's had to give up the idea of his career and so on. And what he just wants to do now is spend time with his family and with his Christian friends. And that's the value of somebody who's got a new perspective on life, of how to spend your time and what you value most. It's valuing the Christian community and what it could give to you. And not only what he could give to it, but what it can give now to him. And it was a great privilege to talk to him. So lots of things for us to think about here now. And um, we must practice these things. It's all very well for me to stand here and if you could see inside my heart you would be very unimpressed 
Um, but we need to work at these things and uh, we need to model them and practice them together.